Hello and welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly podcast. At a time when 65 million people are displaced from their homes and more than 800 million people go to bed hungry every night, how can we make a real difference in tackling poverty and social injustices? Fatima Sumar has been a diplomat and development leader working in the U.S. Senate, the U.S. State Department, and the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Currently, Fatima is Vice President of Global Programs at Oxfam America, a division that focuses on humanitarian aid, local partnerships that improve disaster response, and food systems and security. Today on CID's Speaker Series podcast, Ghazi Mirza, student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, interviews Fatima, who gives us an in-depth look into her role at Oxfam America, the organization's approach to development, and what they're currently focused on in the development space. Welcome everyone. Today we have our guest with us, Fatima Sumar. My first question would be a broader question about Oxfam's approach in tackling poverty. Sure. Well, first, it's so great to be here at the Kennedy School, and thanks so much to the Center for International Development for having me and for inviting Oxfam America to share a little bit with all of you our journey as we think about what it takes to fight the injustice of poverty. So let me tell you a little bit about the work Oxfam's doing. First, we believe fundamentally that the fight is about the injustice of poverty, that this is an approach around human rights, that poverty is man-made, and that intentionally we can either keep people in poverty or help them to get out of poverty. And it's the choices we make with our policies, with our laws, with the way we spend our money that really affect how we think about this. And so when we talk about fighting poverty and the injustice of poverty, it's really with the social justice, human rights lens of what it takes to really invest in the most poor, vulnerable, and marginalized communities. Fatima, could you please talk about your role at Oxfam? How exactly is Oxfam approach different from other players within the nonprofit space? So I'm the vice president of global programs at Oxfam America. The global programs division really focuses on three particular areas. We look at the humanitarian space and how we can be the first on the ground to respond when disaster strikes. We also work on the environment in which humanitarian actors operate and how to make sure those environments really include an approach around local partnership and local humanitarian leadership because we believe that partnership, especially with local actors and partners, is where the real strength to effective disaster response management comes from. Within global programs, we also focus on food security and food systems, really understanding that 800 million people go to bed hungry every night, even though our planet produces enough food to feed us all. So what does it take to unlock the potential to make sure that the very farmers who produce our food also have enough food to eat at night when they go to bed to feed them and their families? We also look at what we call power and money, which is how can we hold the powerful accountable to the amounts of wealth that are being generated and how that wealth is being spent. So we look particular at areas such as extractive industries around oil, gas, and mining, companies that are coming in, often where the most marginalized populations live, many indigenous communities whose land rights and other community rights are often most at risk when these types of companies come in and extract the very natural resources that their environments depend on. And we look at the entire ecosystem of aid effectiveness. So how are aid dollars actually being spent both here in the United States and all around the world? And are we creating the most effective development mechanisms to make sure that that aid reaches the very people we know we want them to reach. Those are some of the areas we're focused on here within Oxfam America as we think about our programming. And we work with many of our partners, both in the international NGO space, but also local partners on the ground, 
with multilateral development institutions, the United Nations, and we also work with government and companies where that makes sense to do so because we really believe our role is one where we both need to influence the very powers and the very people who own that power, and we will work with them where we can, but we'll also put pressure on them, both publicly and privately, to make sure that the policies, the laws that they're passing are ones that actually address the needs of the poor and fight that injustice of poverty. Thank you so much for that. I want to ask a question about the pressure Oxfam puts on governments. So... What are some of the challenges that you face when you're working with campaigning for social justice? So when you are putting pressure on governments, what are some of the pushbacks that you might have received or some of the challenges that you faced on ground? So let me talk about three particular areas that are emerging right now. The first is we're seeing an increased clampdown on civil society, both here in the United States and globally. This makes it very difficult for our local partners at the local level, at the national level, and also at the international level to be able to voice the very concerns in a way that is safe and in a way that their own rights are protected. So this clampdown that we're seeing on civil society and the shrinking or the closing of civic space in many countries is a real concern for us as we think about the environment in which we can operate to make sure that human rights are protected. The second area is the media market. So what we're increasingly seeing is a volatile and oversaturated U.S. media market where it's difficult in this news cycle that moves so quickly to actually generate the headlines and then the sustained attention needed to garner the right type of attention and resources to fight the very causes we believe are worth fighting. The third area that I want to make sure people understand also is especially with climate change happening and uh, what we see around the world with the largest, some of the largest migration patterns because of forced migration due largely to conflict and other natural disasters is that we're seeing an increasing number of emergencies that we need to respond to. So the Washington Post just reported that natural disasters cost the world $155 billion in 2018 alone. The amount of money nonprofits like Oxfam can raise are a drop in the bucket to respond to those concerns. So unless we're able to effectively partner with others in the INGO space, with foundations, with government, with development partners, and with the private sector increasingly to be able to respond to these needs, people are being left behind. We also know that the amount of flood and storm catastrophes have risen about 7.5% annually in recent decades. And not only are the numbers increasing, but the intensity of these storms tend to be worse. We're seeing that play out today as we see the front page headlines around Cyclone E-Day, for instance, in southern Africa. And even though that this was only a category two or three storm with intense, intense winds, the destruction that is taking place throughout Mozambique, Malawi, and Zimbabwe is quite intense and will affect many communities, perhaps generationally, in terms of the impact of loss of livelihood that they're facing. So those are some of the areas where we know as we think about our different campaigns, we think about our different policy initiatives, those are the environments in which we have to operate and the considerations we have to take into account. Thank you. So talking about campaigns, one of the campaigns that you mentioned that Oxfam is currently running is the Barcodes campaign. I was wondering whether if you can talk a bit about that particular campaign. Sure. Oxfam has launched our Behind the Barcodes campaign. And the premise for this is really simple. We at Oxfam think that human suffering should never be an ingredient in the food that we buy from supermarkets. And yet we know that millions of people around the world, many of them who are women, the ones who farm, fish, and process our foods in our stores are working extremely long hours. They're toiling in unsafe conditions and they're earning only poverty wages. So we looked at the seafood in our supermarkets as an example of this. 
We know that pressure from supermarkets to keep costs low mean that the people who fish and process seafood face harsh and degrading conditions on a daily basis. And they're receiving wages that are sometimes so low that ironically they struggle to feed their own families. So we launched the Behind the Barcodes campaign where we aim to raise the voices of the people who produce our food to make sure that they are treated fairly and that they're paid fairly. These are stores and supermarkets that are some of the biggest in the United States, such as Whole Foods, Stop and Shop, and Giant. And we at Oxfam think that Whole Foods, Stop and Shop, Giant, and other of the bigger supermarket chains have a responsibility to act. We are their customers. We have the power to demand that the people behind the food in their stores are treated humanely. If you go to OxfamAmerica.org, you can learn more and join us on the Behind the Barcodes campaign. We encourage you to go down to your local Whole Foods, Stop and Shop, and Giant, print out and sign the petition from our website, and ask them to take the right steps right now to end the suffering behind our food. Thank you very much. On a slightly different note, so one of the challenges that many of the social sector organizations around the world are facing is how to make their work sustainable. So what mechanisms could you talk about that Oxfam uses in order to make sure that the work it's doing with the communities is actually sustainable? Let me talk about a recent example, which is Hurricane Maria when it hit Puerto Rico. When Hurricane Maria hit, it was one of the largest storms to hit the island, devastated local communities. And even though a year has passed, many on the island are still waiting for services waiting for money from the federal government for the urgent repairs to take place. When we talk about sustainability, we know that there's an immediate need to help people, and we do that. But we also understand at Oxfam that there's a long-term policy change or other kinds of systems changes that are required in order to make sure that people have what they need, not just in the immediate, but that the system works for them. And so in Puerto Rico, even as we went in to help in the immediate recovery and aftermath of the devastation of Hurricane Maria, we're still on the ground many, many months later, helping our partners there address urgent needs to repair their homes, work with legal aid partners to file claims with FEMA, and really help focus on the security of women and children in areas that lack electricity in particular. Today, we're working both in Puerto Rico, but we're also working in Washington, D.C. with our partners to put pressure on Congress, the White House, FEMA, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and other leaders to inform and influence the legislation needed to provide adequate recovery funds and address critical issues surrounding property titles. So at Oxfam, when we think about sustainability, it's the entire systematic role of how poverty is created in the first place. And what are the steps that we need to take to make sure that the system works for the very people we want to support. So you've spoken about how the change needs to come from the system or you need to work to change the system. But talking about more of an individual level now, what advice would you have for social workers and social activists who are working within the field to tackle the problem of poverty around the world? So I would say two things. The first is thank you. And the second is don't give up. The problems that we're facing in so many countries around the world, but also here in the United States, require a global response. They require the courage of our activists on the ground in local areas. We've seen and we've partnered with rural indigenous women in, in El Salvador as an example, who travel many, many miles on foot, crossing mountain passes and other dangerous parts of that journey through El Salvador to protest in the streets of San Salvador against a law to privatize water, which would affect rural indigenous and poor communities the most. 
these are the types of voices, this is the type of courage that it takes for governments, for policymakers to take notice that change has to happen and that the system cannot keep being rigged for the elite and for those that control power and wealth in so many countries, that we have a global responsibility to care about the many, many millions of us who don't have access to the very resource it takes to have productive, healthy, and sustainable lives. Many activists today face very dangerous conditions. They're under constant threat. They may be monitored. They may be harassed. In some cases, they're outright killed and tortured. These are the people that are the change agents all around the world. And what I would say to them is that you're not alone. You have friends and partners. We're stronger when we work together. And that we have a collective responsibility to make sure that activists and others in the civil society space have a legal right to operate and have an ability to be able to make sure their voices are heard. So Fatima, in a world where the wealth gap is growing wider, and for example, I recently read that America's 1% hasn't controlled this much wealth since before the Great Depression. So what steps do you think that social activists can take to address this growing wealth gap? So the problems of inequality are perhaps at one of the greatest heights than we've ever seen before. And just to put this in perspective, the number of billionaires has almost doubled, right? With a new billionaire created every two days between 2017 and 2018. Their fortunes have increased by 12% in 2018. So we're talking about $2.5 billion a day. While 3.8 billion people who make up the poorest half of humanity have seen their wealth decline by 11%. When we talk about the increased amount of wealth at the top, a select few now have more wealth than a good percentage of humanity, even while most have barely escaped poverty and live on less than $5.50 a day. So the scale of the problem that we're seeing is unprecedented. And this elite capture of wealth and power at the top in so many countries around the world has created a system that exploits global wealth at the expense of the poor. And that problem set is one that is going to take systematic changes to address and unblock. And you're seeing some of that start to happen and the conversations even starting to happen here in the United States, whether that's on taxes, whether that's on a Green New Deal or other types of measures of what that's going to take. So working in this challenging setting and working with marginalized communities can often be very difficult as many players within the sector talk about fighting a never-ending battle. Um, can you talk about what gives you hope and what's your motivation to continue fighting this battle and working in this field? Well, what gives me hope is seeing examples every day of people that can lift themselves out of poverty, of people that can feed their families, can get jobs, can make sure that they lead healthy, productive lives. And you see that all around the world. I was in Cambodia a few weeks ago, and I was in a very rural area north of the capital, working with women who had received chicken fertilizers and chickens and other types of products so that they could go from receiving handouts from the local government officials just to feed their families every week to being able to sell chickens in the market and with their neighbors and produce income to then feed their families for themselves. And then using that income and investing it locally 
and then buying a motorbike or buying the next kind of asset that they needed to then build a bigger home for their family so that they were safe from the rains and could elevate their home on cinder blocks or stilts. We know if we invest in women, we know if we invest in girls, if we know we actually invest in the very communities that have the resiliency and strength, and if we partner with them, that they can do this and that they can make systematic changes and and help lead the way. So I see this happen every day around the world, despite all the challenges, despite all the heartache, which is there. We know that these types of investments in communities that are the most marginalized and vulnerable can make a difference between life and death, between hope and despair. And knowing that we can make a difference for me is very powerful. And on a personal note, I would just say my own family's journey out of poverty and knowing that within two generations, I can be in this position talking to you about how we can structurally talk about this instead of fighting every moment to keep my own family afloat, which is even in our own family is a big change also gives me hope because we can see how what that pathway looks like with the right types of support and investments. So I do think that this is a journey that's going to require a lot of people to care, to take part in, and that there's a global responsibility to act, but that we see models and people every day and the courage is a profile of how to get this done. Thank you so much, Fatima, for your insight. I think it has been extremely useful just listening to all the answers that you've just given to um, questions that I constantly do think about. And I'm sure there's so many people who ask these questions, especially if they're working in this particular field, which does happen to be quite challenging. So thank you so much for coming to the Kennedy School today and recording this podcast with us. Great. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about CID's research and events, please visit cid.harvard.edu. See you next week.